Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe, and I'd like to tell you about a great podcast called Philosophical Disquisitions. It's hosted by John Danaher. On the show, he talks to many experts about the interaction of technology and humanity. He has a ton of great episodes, and it's easy to find. It's on Apple Podcasts, or you can find it simply by typing Philosophical Disquisitions into Google. It'll come right up. We really love this podcast, and in fact, we love it so much that we're going to give you a little sample of what you'll find there. The following episode is republished from Philosophical Disquisitions. I hope you enjoy it. So my guest today is Stefan Lorenz Sorgner. Stefan teaches philosophy at the John Cabot University in Rome. He is the director and co-founder of the Beyond Humanism Network. He's a fellow at the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies, a research fellow at the IWA, IHA, is that, how do you pronounce that? It's an IWA university, IWA Women's University, the biggest all-girls university in the world. It's got 20,000 20, female students yeah. located right in the center of Seoul. It's a beautiful place for many reasons. Yeah, so you're a research fellow there at the Institute for Humanities and a visiting fellow at the Ethics Center of the Friedrich Schiller University in Jeddah. So you've studied philosophy in King's College London and the University of London, the University of Durham, the University of Gießen, and the University of Jena. Your main fields of research are in Nietzsche and the philosophy of music, bioethics, meta, post, and transhumanism. Stefan is also the editor and co-founder of the Journal of Post-Human Studies, the first journal explicitly dedicated to the post-human. And you're also the author of numerous books, more than I can mention here, but your most recent book is entitled uh, Ubermensch. It's a plea for a Nietzschean transhumanism, which was just published in the past couple of weeks, I think, by Schwabe Verlag. So welcome to the show, Stefan. Yeah, many thanks for the kind of introduction. They actually just came out on the 1st of March, so basically uh, not even a week ago. And Schwabe Publishing is, is the world's oldest publishing house. And it, it used to be explicitly dedicated um, to the humanist tradition. So now they've realized the importance of, you know, post-human reflections. And so that's why they got into contact with me. And uh, they also asked me to establish uh, another book series together with them um, entitled Post-Human Studies, so, um, um, which will be launched later this year with a wonderful monograph. Very good. And so that's an interesting evolution in their kind of publishing ethos or outlook to uh, encompass the, the post-human. Now, and also actually, your book is getting a good bit of attention, I think. You, you've mentioned to me beforehand some publicity you're getting in, in Germany for key influencers, some magazine for key influencers have been keen to interview you about this, this topic. Yeah, just now in, in, in the, well, German equivalent to the Atlantic, a nine-page interview with me was published. Well, actually, it was with me and together with another young German philosophy uh, philosopher, and we basically hold opposing views. Well, he established um, what is called the new realism. His name is Markus Gabriel, and he used to be the youngest German philosophy professor. 
um, at the University of Bonn. And, and he's a best-selling author. So, I mean, his books have already sold more than 100,000 copies. And so, and, and well, he's, he's a realist and I hold on a, from a philosophical perspective an anti-realist um, position. And so we've had sort of very hot disputes concerning the impacts of emerging technologies. Oh, very good. So we're going to chat about your Nietzschean transhumanism, which is, the, as I say, the topic of your most recent book. And I'm just going to structure the conversation around three issues. One is transhumanism itself, then also Nietzschean philosophy, and then finally the link between the two of them, the, the conceptual or philosophical link that you forge between the two things. So if we start out with that idea of transhumanism, I've asked this to previous guests before, but what does transhumanism actually mean to you? If you were asked to define it or characterize transhumanism, what would you say in response? Um, actually, yeah, I've, I've also written the very first introduction to transhumanism uh, in, in the German language. Um, it's called Transhumanism, the world's most dangerous idea. It's currently being translated into English. It might even be out later this year. And, and here and I define transhumanism as the affirmation of emerging technologies in order to increase the likelihood of bringing about the post-human or in order to increase the likelihood of, of breaking the barriers the limits, transcending the limits of who we, which we currently have as human beings. Yeah, so you know, one characterization of transhumanism that I like or that I've used in the past is David Pierce's characterization. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but he talks about transhumanism as being concerned with promoting the three supers, as he calls them, super intelligence, super well-being, and super longevity. Now, you defined transhumanism uh, in terms of the transcending of limits to achieve the post-human state. How do you feel about David Pierce's characterization? Do you think that is broadly correct or is it missing something? Well, I'm, I'm, um, I'm much closer to Julian Huxley's original definition of transhumanism. I mean, Julian Huxley established or coined the term transhumanism in an article in 1951. And, and his understanding, I think, is still broadly... Uh, um, you know, plausible. He gives a very poignant definition. And um, I like David Pierce. We've had numerous conversa public conversations in the past, but actually, um, I don't very, I don't I very much disagree actually with his understanding. It's that it has to, um, has to be the, uh, uh, the promotion of Z3S. It has to be about basically a type of humanism on steroids or a way of um, trying to establish a super a Superman on Viagra or Wonder Woman on Botox, because this is basically what it would be like if we have a specialized idea of a um, of a Renaissance ideal in mind, which transhumanism is 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 supposed to promote. Um, I think it's it's much more about um, the use of of technology just to move away from um, from who we are, who we currently are as human beings. It's not so much about promoting a very specific goal. It could be, and because the reason for that is, is by taking, um, the reason for this is um, the evolutionary aspect as well as the individual aspect. So transhumanism, the, the goal of transhumanism is, is to promote the well-being of, of, of humans. And um, it's not, I don't think you can directly make a claim that by promoting these three aspects, um, we necessarily promote the likelihood of humans living a good life. 
Um, and the second reason is the evolutionary aspect. It's also supposed to promote the likelihood of human survival. And again, it's, it's pretty unclear which qualities exactly promote the likelihood of human survival because it's um, it's about adaptation um, survival is about fitting uh, fitting the environment it and it's unclear which qualities exactly are appropriate which make us being best fit for the environments once the external conditions radically change then it might be that a deaf person is best fitted for survival and so um so I don't think it's um, I don't think we we have a clear description which ideal is supposed to be promoted, but it's rather about the means of radically transcending who we are as human beings and by taking a stance that we humans are firmly part of of nature that there's only a gradual difference between us and other and other sentient beings that there is not a categorical, ontological categorical difference. It's no longer the case that we as human beings, you know, are special because we have the divine spark within us, but we are entirely part of nature just as other animals too. And hence, um, well, we've come about as a, as a result of evolutionary processes. And it's clear that in 400,000 year times, it, we can be sure we will no longer be there. But we want to make sure that sort of our, our evolutionary process, us being part of the evolutionary process, um, we still want to continue to exist. And so, um, um, so we ought to use technologies in order to, to promote the likelihood of doing so. So firstly, the goal is to promote the likelihood of human flourishing. And secondly, to promote the likelihood of being best adapted to the environment to, to guarantee our, our survival. And both things can best be realized by promoting plurality rather than promoting such an ideal like the humanist ideal or Renaissance ideal. Yeah, so the, the problem then with the, the kind of Pierce's characterization, as you say, is that it's too humanistic and it's, it's tied to a very specific ideal of what humanity should be. It's, uh, as you say, a humanism on, on steroids. Exactly. And so yeah, yeah. Because it's important to realize that once we've abandoned the ex external world, once we have abandoned such a, a world of immaterial forms, um, there is no longer a good reason to uphold such an ideal. We must rather understand that it is plurality um, which increases the likelihood of our, our being fit for the environment as well as there's so many understandings. There's so many different concepts of what, what the good life consists in as there are human beings. And there's probably not one element which, which is part of all our, our, our definitions, all, our, all applicable concepts of the good lives. So no non-formal definition of the good life um, it can most probably be given. The, 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 the yeah. one element which is most likely to apply is, um, well, most people are interested in, in, a, in a prolonged health span. And this is what is being confirmed by, by psychological studies. But even that element is not something which I would claim, for which I would claim universal validity. It's only something which is being shared by most people. Yeah, so if I'm getting you right, then you for you, transhumanism is really more of a kind of a, an attitude towards change in the future, and it's not really about a specific goal or destination. And maybe it's more about 
promoting certain kinds of experimentation with the human condition. So maybe certain kinds of technological intervention into human nature to enable us to adapt and change to this future that might eventuate in 400,000 years. So we know our ancestors aren't going to be identical to us because we're likely to evolve and change and adapt. And so what we need to do is to set in place the conditions that enable us to adapt. So it's, it's about putting in place the, the tools that we need to experiment with our natures. Is that correct? Yeah, and also changing the legal, um, the legal framework, which um, then should allow us to experiment with the different possibilities um, which we are developing. Because so far we are strongly we're we we strongly we live in encrusted humanist Christian structures which force us to stick to ideals which are no longer justifiable and we need to detect these structures and abandon them get rid of them in order to allow real plurality and diversity to flourish and that also means that means um, we no longer have such an essentialist understanding of who we are as, as human beings. There's no longer an unchanging human nature. Everything which is there is subject to change. And subject to change is also subject to technological change. And, and technology is something which has always been a part of us. There's never been, we've always been cyborgs. We have always been cybernetic organisms. This is sort of the re revised understanding um, of us as, as human beings, which we need to take seriously. And what does that mean, cybernetic organism? Cybernetic comes from Kubernetes, from the ancient Greek, that we've been steered, we've been altered. So we've been steered, changed organisms. And basically, we need to realize that the first steering, the process which took place is our parents teaching us language. So that's the first upgrade we, we are receiving. And then there are many additional upgrades in the part of educational processes, um, which, we, which um, we go through in order again to increase the likelihood of us li living good lives. And, and it, even the use of uh, the use of genetic alterations as well as uh, uh, cyborg changes as well as um, interactions with digital interfaces um, um, that's all that's all structurally analogous to the first upgrade which we received as um, by means of uh, by learning a language does that mean then that there's a if we've always been cyborgs is there another sense in which we've always been transhumanists in, in a sense or there's always been a transhumanist current within human civilization um yes however culturally this is not the case has not been the case i mean culturally we've developed a different um we've de we've de developed different concepts um which had a significant a, a, a significant effect upon our lives and i think the most important thinker in that respect was plato he was the one who sort of divided the world up in, into a sensual world and in in the world which can only be grasped by means of thinking and then paul saint paul was responsible for integrating platonic thinking into christianity and then christianity took over and basically since then this dualistic way of thinking this way of dividing up the world into a world of of mat material objects and a world of immaterial souls 
has been the dominant one. And um, this is um, what we're currently in the process of overcoming. Sort of with, with Darwin, we, uh, with Darwin, a significant step took place um, who, by means of which we realized that we are entirely part of this world of dynamic, permanent change. Nietzsche applied this way of thinking um, to, to the realm of philosophy. Wagner, again, started from the same insight and, and took seriously in the implication for the realm of arts. So it's something which is currently happening, which is occurring since the end of the 19th century. And we're only gradually realizing all the enormous amount of implications that it has. And we don't even have a clear understanding how revolutionary that change is by taking seriously that um, we are evolutionary beings. And I mean, transhumanism came about as part of, I mean, J Julian Huxley, who, who first coined the term transhumanism as part of that entire um, family of evolutionary thinkers. I mean, his, um, one of his brother, one, one um, half bro brother of his won the Nobel Prize. The other brother is Aldous Huxley, who talks a lot about um, uh, the implications of evolutionary thinking. And his, and his great grandfather is Thomas Henry Huxley, who used to be Darwin's rigorous defender, who used to be Darwin's bulldog and is known to be as Darwin's bulldog. So it's, it's rather a way of realizing a new understanding of who we are as human beings and thinking through all the implications um, which go along with that. And, and, and because we've lived, we've grown up in a culture so strongly dominated by Christian thinking and Christianity is nothing but Plat um, Platonism for the people as, as Nietzsche correctly noted. We, 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 we still need to get rid of all the paternalistic, impl totalitarian implications um, by means of which we're dominated in order to be able to freely use all the possibilities which technologies enable us to play with. Yeah, so we're undergoing or we're, we're still part of this shift towards a transhumanist culture. And you've kind of singled out this midpoint in the, 18, in the 19th century, so the 1800s, as being key to this. So that the, the shift inaugurated by Darwin, and you mentioned as well Nietzsche as being a key figure in the philosophical consequences of, of Darwinism. And as I mentioned at the outset, your book is a defense of a Nietzschean transhumanism. So I'd like to maybe just take a little bit of a step backwards and talk about Nietzsche and his importance to your view. So for people who aren't familiar, and I must confess that I'm not hugely familiar with Nietzsche's work, I I mentioned to you off air that I just read a, a biography of Nietzsche, so I have acquired some minimal familiarity with the work in advance of this interview, but I, I'm not hugely familiar with it. So well, like, what is... Nietzsche's core philosophy, my understanding of it, and I'm happy to be corrected in this, is that it's built out of two things. Part of it is this rejection of the Christian moral philosophy or worldview, which you highlighted in your comments there. And also, he's heavily influenced by the work of Schopenhauer and Wagner. And a lot of his later philosophy was an attempt to go beyond Schopenhauer's extremely kind of pessimistic worldview. Is that is my conceptualization of Nietzsche correct? Uh, maybe you could explain some of the influences and motivations behind Nietzsche's work for listeners. Yeah, I mean these are definitely all elements which are which are you know um, important for Nietzsche's way of thinking. But sort of just to reduce it to Schopenhauer and and and, and Wagner um, would be a bit too limited. I mean one mustn't forget that he is a classicist by training. 
and um, his 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 understanding is is in the end what he's he's developing is he's trying to take seriously Heracletian um, philosophy of becoming. So Heraclitus is, is one of the pre-Socratic philosophers um, who is best known for his um, well for his utterance for his aphorism. Um, which is a sort of a, one of the fragments which remains of its thinking that you cannot step into the same river twice. Um, it, it, and sort of all all different aspects of its thinking show, well, in the end, there is nothing which is certain. There is um, nothing we can permanently rely on. Basically, we live in a world which is subject to change in all aspect in each moment. So, however, if we wanted to talk about that philosophically, we couldn't even talk about it in a meaningful manner because words consist of words are unchanging. They are stable. They could never correspond to the change which is actually already occurring. So this is um, this is the basic struggle, or this is the basic. I think the most important philosophy um, which has influenced Nietzsche's way of thinking. And I've, I've I mean, um, I've started off being concerned with Nietzsche, I started reading Nietzsche um, after having read Heraclitus um, at the age of 13, which is now more than 30 years ago. So, so I actually come now from a, from a deep engagement with Nietzsche's way of thinking. And that doesn't mean when I'm presenting now my, my transhumanist outlook that it's, it's simply an affirmation of Nietzsche. Obviously, now I'm being very critical. But I think Nietzsche was an extremely extremely radical enlightenment thinker and um in, in this this also means enlightenment undermines itself if you logically think through all the implications of um enlightenment thinking so on the basis of taking seriously all the criticisms of the enlightenment in the end you cannot justify anymore that we are autonomous beings but by thinking as autonomous beings this was the initial step um, of the Enlightenment process, and this is what was what was being done by Nietzsche. This is, was also being done by um, a thinker like Marquis de Sade. So this is sort of this radical criticism um, of of the entire philosophical Christian framing, um, which is so strongly part of um, of, of of our cultural history, um, which was from a philosophical perspective initialized by Nietzsche, and um, he embraces rather a way of thinking which goes back to a, a pre-Socratic thinking inspired, you know, like Heraclitus, which is radically, categorically different um, to the way the Platonic Christian tradition is conceptualized. Yep. Okay, so. Yeah, so, so you outlined nicely the kind of influence and origin of Nietzsche's work and how it is different and separates itself from what went before. Maybe you could help us now by outlining some of the key concepts or ideas from Nietzsche that you think are important and also that play a role in your Nietzschean transhumanism. Now, I read an earlier article that you wrote about this topic, so I'm not au fait with your most recent statement, but a couple of the concepts that seem to be important from that, which are also featured in, in most discussions of Nietzsche, are things like the will to power, and, of course, the, the Uber mentioned the idea of eternal recurrence. So maybe we could just start with that idea of the will to power and the will to power metaphysics. What, what is that and why is it important in this discussion about Nietzschean transhumanism? 
With the will to power, um, he's presenting a new ontology of becoming. It's a non-essentialist ontology. So in the end, what the world consists in, there are no discrete objects. The subject-object distinction no longer applies. And, and this is the most radical break with any kind of metaphysics you can imagine. So it doesn't even make sense of talking about subject and object, object anymore. It's um, will to power ontology is a further development. I mean, from a philosophical perspective of a, in, in a Leibnizian perspective of monads, but now with the monads being able to grow and, and get smaller. So every entity in the world in the end is something which is subject to change. Everything there is 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 sort of is all the all the stability we perceive is just an apparent stability. In the end, there is no kind of stability. Everything's in permanent change in all respects. And this is what he was trying to phrase, um, conceptualize within his philosophy of the will to power. Uh, and the will to power as a way, it sounds very um it sounds very anthropocentric um, in, in the way it was an a, a attempt to give, make a description actually of everything there is in the world. And, and it's, it's a logic which he derived from Schopenhauer. So the only, all, all things in the world, we can only get to know by means of our senses. There's only one thing we can understand from the inside as well as from the outside. And that's ourselves. And so by analyzing yourselves, you find out not only what is our, the fundamental tribe within yourself, but within all the other objects in the world as well, the, all the other things in the world as well. Because all, at the essence, everything has to be, has to be made out, out of the same stuff, because otherwise we couldn't interact. And so by analyzing yourself, he realized he's driven by any kind of power. But power not in the sense of a very simple-minded political power. Power is, is a way of becoming dominant over something. And sort of someone who, who and power can some, mean something different in different cultural circumstances. I mean, someone performing timber tossing and winning games in timber could also count as a type of power. And, and political power isn't even the highest type of power. The highest type of power, according to Nietzsche, is um, finding a new interpretation of the world and convincing other people of that understanding. And he kind of, the highest type of power is a, to interpret the world of becoming as a world of being. And this is what Plato did, and this is what he tries to do as well. Could it's, I... It's a very, it's a very intellectual enterprise. Um, intellectual capacities are in the end the highest type of power. So his understanding of power definitely is not sort of that political blonde beast, which is often being associated with it. And he's definitely, I mean, many of the, many of the reasons why people find Nietzsche problematic are not justified by means of his, his philosophy. I mean, he finds, for example, anti-Semitism absolutely abhorrent. He, he refers to himself as an anti-anti-Semite. So this notion of power is not one of political power, but very much connected with the possibilities of, of creating forms to interpret the world of becoming.
I might come back to some of the negative interpretations of, of Nietzsche a bit later on, but to, to kind of drill down on this idea of the will to power, I think I followed it initially. So it seemed to me a little, as you mentioned, the influence of Schopenhauer, and Schopenhauer was influenced by kind of Buddhist or Eastern philosophy. So the idea yeah. to me seems very consistent with Eastern philosophies that exactly. everything is change, everything is flux. Yeah. There is There are no stable ontological categories in the Platonic sense. And we need to embrace that reality. The second part of it, though, this the power element of it, is this a... What, like, what is Nietzsche saying there? Is it that there's a tendency to try to exert power over this state of constant flux that we, and bring order to it by saying that this thing that is becoming has a fixed being? Is, is he just saying that that's a fact about what we do? Or is it, does this have a more normative connotation or element to it that this is what we ought to be doing or how should i interpret that aspect of it no it's not he, he doesn't make a normative statements definitely not normative statements which are supposed to be or which claim any kind of universal validity um no it's it's a description of what is going on and and what what people identify with power is it depends on the individual perspective um so each different Entity is a, is, a, is a power constellation, a power constellation consisting of different power quanta interacting and then in this way developing also certain criteria by means of which they interpret power. And, 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 and the criteria varies from perspective to perspective. So it's, it's very closely related to his perspectivism too. And what some people think identify with power is, is can be very different from, from what other people identify with it. And, but he, he tries to convince the readers that actually the, the most powerful, the highest kind of power um, which, which, which you can develop is, is the one of doing philosophy, of interpreting the world, giving, giving form to a world which does not have any form, which is in permanent change. And then, and then to convince others of, of that interpretation. And according to him, this is what, what was done by Plato. He said, no, in the end, there is no such, maybe in, in the world around us, we perceive all the change, but what really exists are the platonic unchanging forms. And that was later on connected with, with the Christian God, the unchanging good God. And so in, in this way, according to Nietzsche, what, what Plato managed to do was actually um, to influence the way of thinking for, you know, two millennia. And that's why it's the highest type of power. That's why sort of if you manage to do so, if you manage to, to, to shape thinking in such a manner that it becomes convincing for, for many people over, over a long period of time, you can influence how people act. And, and that's why it's sort of the philosophical doing philosophy and interpreting the world of change as a world of, of being is the highest kind of power. And in the same way, what was done by Plato and how he influenced Christian way of thinking for 2000 years. And so this is what now now Nietzsche is trying to do. He tries to reshape, he refocus our way of thinking to move away from any 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 stability and to show all the implications which uh, um, which we need to deal with once we embrace a dynamic worldview full of permanent continuous change 
So you mentioned there the perspective, perspectivalism or perspectivism within Nietzsche. So what is that idea um, and why is it important? So the perspectivism is, is, is follows from his, his will, will to power ontology. Each individual entity consists of many quantas which get bigger and smaller, but each inter, each, each entity, well, each is, is represents a perspective by means of which it interprets the world and, and develops a criterion um, of, of power, how it should develop further. So, um, and this perspectivism is in the end his epistemology, his way of justifying how we can get some understanding of the world. Epistem well, his perspectivism in the end means every perspective is an interpretation. And his perspectivism leads to, is, is, is sort of the original thought, which also leads to postmodern philosophy. On the one hand, on the other hand, what he embraces is a naturalist ontology of becoming. And it seems to be that, you know, these are two mutually exclusive um, positions. So on the, on the one hand, he says, every perspective is an interpretation. And then on a, from a philosophical perspective, people argue against them and say, no, this is like the same mistake which, which all the postmodern thinkers commit. You're just holding us, um, you're, you're committing the same mistake as um, with the Cretan liar paradox. A Cretan who says all Cretans are liars. But this is not the case. When he, when he, he, dis, he puts forward his perspectivism, it means all perspectives are interpretations, but an interpretation is not a judgment which has to be false. An interpretation is merely a judgment which can be false. So the same applies. It can refer back to his own uh, own perspectivism. His perspectivism, again, is also his perspective, which can be false, but which doesn't have to be false. In order to prove, to show that his pr perspectivism is self-contradictory or is, 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 is implausible, one would actually have to present a, a perspective which is actually the truth. And so far, no one has been able to do so. So on the one hand, with this aspect of Nietzsche's thinking, it leads on to postmodern philosophy. On the other hand, how he developed it, his perspectivism, was by taking seriously uh, Darwinistic, naturalist um, world of permanent change. Because that that lead led him to to affirm his perspectivism. So and and nowadays actually the world well the, the, in the realm of philosophy there are two dominant two dominant uh, groups of thinking. On the one hand the naturalist thinking, on on the other hand sort of certain varieties of postmodern thinking, and they you are usually hostile to each other. They they haven't realized that once you affirm. Once you embrace a naturalist way of thinking, you can no longer uphold any traditional notion of the truth as in correspondence of the world. And that's, that's sort of um, what, I, um, what I start off from. That's what I, I'm trying to show. That's what I, I've been developing further as well. And this also is, is a major challenge to a lot of transhumanist thinkers. Many transhumanist thinkers sort of claims that, um, well, this postmodern you know, rambling is, is, is a lot of, you know, nonsensical bullshit. 
um, and we need to, and that rejection of the truth is not is something which we cannot make sense of. But actually, once once you take seriously the uh, approach of a naturalist philosophy, then you need to then you need to realize that that it's no longer possible possible to affirm any strong notion of truth as in correspondence of the world. And this is what is um, this is what is 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 such a fundamental insight because. To realize that a notion, truth in correspondence, needs in the end a realm of unchanging platonic forms to which the judgments can correspond. Um, and once you, we abandon that world, once we enter a dynamic world of becoming, then such notions can no longer be justified. That doesn't mean that um, we cannot make, yeah, there are no better or worse sentences. Obviously, if if, if something gets you know, by means of scientific research, um, we get certain insights, but they're insights which work pragmatically. They usually work. These are sort of pragmatic kinds of truths. They are not fundamental, fundamental philosophical truths in the sense of corresponding to the world. They are insights which usually work, and they usually work in a reliable manner, because otherwise, and we wouldn't get on a plane, because planes are, are being based on this scientific insights. So I'm trying to show that this hostility between embracing a naturalism and, and, and between um, um, the other perspective of rejecting truths is, is not one which is in, justifiable. Um, actually, anyone who, who embraces a naturalist stance ought also embrace the notion of postmodern rejection of the truth and vice versa. So um, these two ways of thinking, actually, if, if thought consistently leads to each other. And this is something members of both traditions uh, have, have, have problems with. I mean, if I could come in on that, because so I... At times when you were outlining that view, I, I was following it. And then other times I found myself a little bit lost in the sense that it seems to me to to unite both the naturalist and the postmodernist view in this Nietzschean form, you still have to embrace one foundational truth, which is that the truth of becoming, of continual becoming or continual change. So that that has to be a true statement about the world. That, so that is, in some sense, capturing a fundamental metaphysical truth about reality. Then, of course, it does follow that if everything is change, that means that what is true and what is false isn't stable over time because things are changing. But there is still some basic meta-foundational truth about change. Does that make any sense to you? No, but, but you couldn't even utter... Uh, um... Uh, sensibly utter the statement um, or concerning that fundamental understanding of the world. Because if you want to have correspondence, then the words would have to correspond to what is going on. And the words remain stable while the, while the world is in change. That's one of the uh, problems. However, um, given such an understanding, we would actually, if you actually um, would have to make sense of the statement that the, the world is in permanent change, um, you would have to exclude the possibility that there's anything else beside it. But you can't exclude the possibility. So even such a statement as the world is in permanent change is something is, that's the best possible, you know, st starting point I can, I can present as long as, you know, no one gives a better perspective. That's the best I can get. You cannot, such a statement can never claim objective validity because thereby it would claim 
something more than you actually able to present because you would have to exclude the possibility that there is a realm of unchanging forms which i don't think yeah. I, which i don't think anyone can do yeah so i, I mean i think I, I get that in the so the the statement that reality is this in this continual state of flux and be, change and becoming is itself just a perspective that exactly. and, and it it it's isn't a, a universal categorical exactly. truth it's the best the best we can get and i think you know this is the way i see the world but i wouldn't even concerning this this statement i would claim a fundamental universal validity that's that's that that's sort of the way i interpret the world and it makes sense and it usually you know leads to the best implications it has very very reliable implications but um to claim that it's it has to be universally valid is more than I can justify on the basis of that uh, of that philosophy. Yeah, I mean, we could pursue this specific issue for much longer, but I do want to move on to some other key concepts from Nietzsche and then discuss the, the transhumanist implications of this. Although I, I think people who are listening to it will see some obvious affinities between what we're talking about here and the earlier discussion and definition of transhumanism. But the other, probably the most important idea from your perspective, is is the idea of the the Ubermensch or the the overhuman, as you put it? That's the title of your book. So, what is that concept that you take from Nietzsche? What does Nietzsche intend by it, and what do you understand by it? I mean, Nietzsche um, doesn't mention that concept all too often. Actually, uh, one of the central passages um, where he refers to it, where he uses it, is is that um, humans are, are merely a rope between the animals and the overhuman. And he does play around a lot, and he's read Darwin, and he plays around a lot with sort of evolutionary thinking. He actually rejects Darwin, but he doesn't, by rejecting Darwin, that doesn't mean that he rejects evolutionary thinking. He only rejects that it's a struggle for survival, that he thinks humans want to, in the end, are motivated just in order to survive. Many people give up their lives in order to gain further power. So it's rather a matter of power than for, for survival. And that's the reason why he rejects Darwin. However, in, in, in principle, he agrees with the evolutionary way of thinking. And so basically, um, by highlighting over human, the overhuman, the overhuman is, is just a, a different way of referring to a further developed human being, just as the notion of the posthuman is within the transhumanist discourse. So it's, it's, it, it's, it's a way of highlighting that we are evolutionary beings, that we've been, you know, we've had, as humans had, have had common ancestors with grape apes six million years ago. We've turned into Homo sapiens sapiens 400,000 years ago. And I'm for, in another 400,000 years, we will no longer be there. And, and we will have developed further unless we will have died out. And that's sort of, um, um, by referring to the post-human, it's, it's not a clear reference to any, any specific entity. It's stressing, um, and, uh, stressing um, that we as humans are internally... Uh, entirely part of part of nature and um, uh, are the result of evolution and and will also develop further as part of evolution unless we die out however um well he does make further statements concerning who the 
well, who we will turn into or who we should turn into. He also sort of some, he presents some normative elements. And herein he is a, he's in an internal conflict because he's actually stuck in two different, in two different, between two different concepts concerning ideals which which we should realize. On the one hand, he he like 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 peers, like other transhumanists, have that idea of of a Renaissance ideal of higher, better, faster, super intelligence, super longevity, etc. Et um, and this is something. Um, maybe not super longevity, but like the Renaissance ideal, the classical ideal is something which Nietzsche also upholds in some of his, his, his utterances. In others, he stresses that it's actually, there is no unified ideal which is valid for all. We all must listen to our individual set of psychophysiological drives, wishes, desires, out of which our bodies are made made of and this is the element actually which i am strongly stressing so in order um and this is something which i find personally highly highly plausible highly uh, plausible understanding of um how, how we function that there is no 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 universally valid concept of, of the good life which applies to all of us about we can make any non-formal statement so that is represents one insight which coming from a, from Nietzschean reflection. So Nietzsche in itself is torn in between that um, um, Renaissance ideal or classical ideal and the radical plurality of the concepts of the good. And I think actually, um, no, if we seriously embrace the notion of 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 of, of this worldliness of of a psychophysiologies without any world of change, then it then each body is made out of so many different tribes. Um, we cannot make any any universally valid statement. We can share. We can discover by means of psychological research, for example, um, elements which are shared by many people, and these are elements which should also be taken seriously on a political level, like prolonging the health span. However, um, even that cannot claim universal validity. Yeah, so, so as I see it, that you're suggesting that there's an ambivalence, or yeah, an ambivalence or ambiguity, perhaps in in the Nietzschean conception of the Ubermensch, or how he conceptualized that originally. That part of it is tied to this humanism on steroids idea that we discussed earlier on, but then the other part of it, which you prefer to emphasize, is this notion of there's really no fixed essence or nature to humanity. It's in this process of evolution or changing. So it's not like we're trying to get to a particular ideal end state. It's more embracing the fact that human nature is not fixed, that humanism is not a fixed normative category or ideal category for the future of humanity. So I mean, that's how I'm understanding or interpreting your comments here. Exactly. Okay. So, so we've, kind of, we've kind of done this already, but tie this all into transhumanism then. So why, let, let me put this in the, in the form of a question. You defend a Nietzschean transhumanism, and I think from the discussion here we can see some obvious reasons as to why you might do this, but is it possible to be a transhumanist without fully embracing these Nietzschean ideas? I mean, is do we need Nietzsche? Does Nietzsche give us something that is otherwise lacking or missing in a transhumanist philosophy? Transhumanism has been developed. I mean, originally coined 
you know, Tom, um, by, by Julian Huxley. Then there were major influences in, in the 70s, you know, FM 2030, and, and, and then later on with Max Moore, Natasha Vita Moore, and, and then in the 90s, David Pierce, Nick Bostrom, James Hughes, and beginning of the 2000s. Um, a long tradition. There hasn't been, I mean, most of the reflections which have occurred have either occurred not within philosophy, outside of philosophy. If the reflections were being done by philosophers, then they were being done by philosophers within the analytic philosophical tradition. And there hasn't been really any, 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 anyone who's trained in both tradition or anyone who was a stronger sympathy from also the continental stream to, to have embraced this transhumanist outlook. And this is what I'm doing. I mean, my own take, I mean, my background is on the one hand, I had a training in analytic philosophy in the UK, but then I did a PhD with, um, was, you know, one of the most, well, but definitely the most important living hermeneutic philosophers, Gianni Vattimo, who was a student of Gadama. And, and so, so I have got a training in both of these traditions and, and I realized by, by embracing, by dealing with, with Nietzsche's philosophy, I'm not, I'm not affirming all the elements of Nietzsche's thought, but he's a very stimulating thinker. And it, it enables me to develop a, a way of transhumanist philosophy, which is, is, is very complex in nature, which enables me to reflect upon uh, ontological issues, on epistemological issues, and not just on, on the application in, in various disciplines of applied ethical discourse. And so I think it, 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 it's a possibility of shaping, of, of developing a much more rounded, complex way of, of defending transhumanist thinking. Um, in a way, it also enables us to be taken more seriously within philosophy, philosophy departments, literary studies, cultural studies departments, um, which are influenced by different, more complex way of philosophical cultural thinking and 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 then this is this is sort of the goal which i'm i'm trying to pursue so most philosophies and um that's why there's a strong hesitation within many humanistic disciplines concerning transhumanism have had a either not a very either not a very philosophical way of dealing with 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 the challenges or if done so from a very narrow analytic utilitarian perspective and this is definitely not one which is which is sort of the dominant understanding well, which is being shared in in many other um disciplines by many other thinkers in, in universities in, in in or in the continental world and so i think um engaging with nietzsche's thinking enables you enables me at least to develop a very rich, philosophical, complex way of thinking from a transhumanist perspective, um, which encloses elements which have traditionally maybe not been so central to transhumanist thinkers or which haven't been dealt with at all from a, you know, from a, from a very well complex um, developed perspective. And that's, that's, that's uh, the reason why I engaged with, with Nietzsche's thinking. Yeah, I mean, I, I get 
the attraction of that because as you say it, within the analytical school of thought on transhumanism there is a sense in which transhumanism is essentially just a a form of applied ethical reasoning and is narrow narrow as a result whereas adopting this perspective you enrich it with a deeper kind of metaphysics and ontology and epistemology that is otherwise lacking i think so i think that's fair enough and as you say this might appeal to a broader school of thought or set of thinkers as a result but I but do, at least a different one. At d- least a different yeah, one. different, yeah. But I want to push back a little bit against that to some extent in two ways. And I kind of sent you some of these questions beforehand. But I have two concerns about a Nietzschean form of, of transhumanism. One of these concerns is not that serious, I think, but I'm going to raise it anyway. And the other one I think is a little bit more serious, at least from my, my perspective. The first worry I have is that Nietzsche has certain negative associations. Nietzschean philosophy has negative associations. Uh, you mentioned some of them already in this conversation. Um, I just uh, said I finished this biography of, of Nietzsche, and Nietzsche's sister was famously, I don't know exa- her exact involvement in the, in the Nazi party, but she was uh, you know connected to Nazism and probably was responsible for some of the reception and interpretation of his ideas in the early part of the, the 20th century. And I appreciate that Nietzschean scholars reject the associations between Nietzsche and and fascism and Nazism um, and would say that that's not part of his core philosophy. And as you said earlier on, he wasn't himself an anti-Semite. But the negative associations are still there. And I do worry a little bit about the effect that that, those negative associations might have on the marketing or branding of of transhumanism. And if there is a goal to get transhumanism more broadly accepted and to encourage this transhumanist culture i would worry a bit about those negative associations um i mean how do you feel about that do you do you think that is a serious concern or is that something we shouldn't worry about i i know it is a very um from from quite a few transhumanists um this negative association it's not uh, it's not justified as i sort of tried to stress before for example i mean yeah Nietzsche's sister was a really nasty person. I mean, she was married to an anti-Semite. And and she invited Hitler to come to the Nietzsche archive um, in in, in Weimar. And so there is sort of this connection um, with with Nazism, with with fascism. Nietzsche hated anti-Semites. He explicitly referred to his own approach as an anti-anti-Semitism. He, I mean, he rejected all the associations, uh, you know, these approaches by, by his, the sister, the husband of, of, of his sister. These were all things which he didn't, or not only anything to do with, but which o- o- always go against his own approach. This is not to mean that there are no, without anti-Semitism, there are no other challenging aspects within Nietzsche's philosophy. There are, but I don't think these other elements actually are necessary elements. And these are parts which I also reject. For example, Nietzsche's thinking, if, if, you, if you look at the political implications of, of his approach, then they might end up, on, well, it's, it's likely that they end up in a, in a multi-class society, which is also something which I am rejecting. But at least it is 
an approach which is necessarily necessary to take seriously because obviously if you i mean that's basically the gatica argument um if you if you play around if you change or if you use technologies in order to change the human makeup then it it it, it there's at least the potential of creating a two class society between the genetic between the technologically altered and the technologically non altered and so if you, if it's done by genetic alterations then there's sort of the possibility of genetic discrimination that's why even by taking these um the implications of Nietzsche's thinking seriously. It's a way of also being focused on, on some of the possible challenges related to emerging technologies. As I, I say, I don't, um, um, I don't, I don't affirm, this is definitely a part of, of Nietzsche's philosophy of, of which I'm very critical of. Um, but I can see also the various of just being associated um, with Nietzsche's. Um, philosophy as a way of, of sort of branding, marketing. However, I, I, I don't, I, I don't think Nietzsche, even in particular in the Anglo-American world, um, among philosophers, among Nietzsche scholars, um, here actually this understanding of, of Nietzsche as a, as a thinker who who gets identified with with. This well, definitely with anti-Semitism. This has clearly been rejected. This is widely taken for granted. This is something which um, Anglo-American scholars are very open to Nietzsche thinking. In Germany, actually, the situation is a different one. Um, there used to be the the massive discourse, the public discourse, as a consequence of Peter Sloterdijk having having given a presentation concerning the rules. Um, rules on the human soul, where it basically said, well, we need to find regulations for the implications of emerging technologies. And, and in, in, as part of that, that's all he said, actually. But he played around, he referred to Plato, Nietzsche, and Heidegger during this presentation of his. And this was sufficient for German academia or public debate going crazy. Um, there was an enormous discussion, and you know, in in major newspapers, and and even in the famous essay by Jürgen Habermas on liberal eugenics, he basically responds to Sloterdijk's um, reflections, and and Jürgen Habermas in his text on liberal eugenics, he actually explicitly cites Peter Sloterdijk's presentation without using the name Sloterdijk. So it just says, you know, this is a quote, but without explicitly stating from whom it is. But in that context, there's one passage where he clearly shows, um, well, this is what Sloterdijk affirms is a dangerous transhumanist thinking, uh, which is traditionally been a, so, which can be identified with a neo neo Nietzschean way of thinking, which is highly dangerous. Which is actually not the case because Peter Sloterdijk is even more bioconservative than Habermas himself. All he did in that presentation was 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 you know stressing the importance of uh, uh, re reflecting upon these issues. But that shows obviously shows 
um, that in, in, so in the German context, probably the sensitivity concerning Nietzsche is even even stronger than in the Anglo-American world. So um, though basically what Habermas said, yeah, no, what the transhumanists are doing, this is a neo-Nietzschean enterprise. And luckily this, this approach hasn't caught on by a wider, wider public. That was, that's what he said in the beginning of the 2000s. This is no longer the case. Now, now this was like um, 17, 18 years ago. Um, nowadays, definitely, you know, transhumanism has, has entered the wider public. Hollywood movies are being made um, uh, on that topic, like Transcendence with Johnny Depp. Novels still deal with that issue. Then Dan Brown's Inferno, where he explicitly deals with transhumanism. All the series by Netflix, all the leading series by Netflix or, or Amazon um, are concerned with that, like Altered Carb. Black Mirror, which is wonderful, um, or, or or Electric Sheep. Um, so so nowadays it's no longer just being dealt with. I mean, transhumanism is no longer being dealt with just by a small group um, of, of of programmers who've been sitting into the, in front of the computer for too long. Now it really turned into wider cultural movement, and as a consequence, actually in in Germany, Habermas try to find a different way of rejecting transhumanism. He now refers to transhumanists as a, as a type of religious sect, which obviously is not the case either because there are no prayers, no rituals. I mean, it's just a way of rhetorically trying to abandon transhumanism from the serious intellectual debate. So, it's, it's, so the challenge is the following. On the one hand, um, there is still the association of Nietzsche and, and a certain way of dangerous thinking, um, on the other hand, which could stop people from embracing it. On the other hand, by engaging with, with Nietzsche's thinking and by applying it to transhumanist um, reflections, it's a possibility of developing a much more complex way of thinking about this issue, which again would enable this transhumanist thinking to, to enter further enter serious academic debates as well as further cultural debates. And I, I, I personally think um, sort of the benefits which one gains by engaging with Nietzsche's outweigh the dangers of being connected with problematic con connotations. In addition, um, it, it might actually be, be helpful um, just for strategic purposes to, to, to use that, these dangerous connotations by stimulating a further public discourse about these issues which are of utmost uh, contemporary relevance. So um, that's why I think the dangers are by far outweigh the, the advantages which go along with using Nietzsche's, Nietzsche's way of thinking and referring to it explicitly too. Yeah, I mean, just to correct the last thing you said, I think you meant it the other way around. So the, the advantages of connecting Nietzsche's philosophy to transhumanism outweigh the exactly, disadvantages. Yeah, sorry, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. The advantages outweigh the, the disadvantages because um, so, yeah, you yeah. develop a more complex way of thinking. It gets t taken seriously by acad in, in academia as well as in cultural debates, and it can actually promote a way of, of, of getting further attention, you know, creating further attention 
as a, as a consequence of these dangerous connotations. Yes, and, yeah, yeah. So it's an it's an enriched understanding and also attracts attention to the exactly. this this transhumanist cultural shift that we're talking about. I mean, let, let me just then move to the other objection I have, and I think this will probably be the the last question that I have really about Nietzschean transhumanism. And this is my more substantive worry about Nietzschean transhumanism, which goes back to some of the things that you mentioned earlier on, which, you know, Nietzsche is not, does not make normative statements or normative claims. He inv- embraces a fairly radical form of, of perspectivalism. And it seems like a kind of relativism to me. And I could, again, I admit I could be wrong on this. But so my understanding is that there there is no universal unchanging set of values that determines what is good for us that the conception of the good life as you mentioned is is pluralistic so it's really up to each individual to decide to some extent what is good for themselves we have to construct our own purposes and meanings in life this is one of the core ideas that i took from from nietzsche is that it's to find meaning and purpose it's the, the meaning and purpose isn't out there for us to discover it's something that we need to construct Exactly. Now, I, I agree that that gives us a reason to think that transhumanism is permissible. So it's transhumanism as a worldview or practical philosophy is something that can provide people with meaning. But it, it, then it, transhumanism just becomes a mere preference. It's, like, it's something that we can embrace if we want. It's a way of finding purpose and meaning and value in life. But it's not the only way. Um, and there are many other ways of finding purpose and having living a good life on the one hand that sounds nice and pluralistic but on the other hand it doesn't seem to provide transhumanists with what they want which is like a firmer normative grounding for their philosophy some reason to favor transhumanism over other kinds of models of the good life and so i I worry that a nietzschean transhumanism is somehow doesn't quite give us exactly what we need to fully endorse or get on board with the transhumanist project. So um, am I wrong to interpret the Nietzsche in this way? And you know, how would you respond to that concern? This is a very good point. And, and I would just interpret the, the consequences differently. I think, um, no, um, by, by taking the implication seriously, um, it is a way of highlighting the advantages of, of trans, this transhumanist, Nietzschean transhumanist approach, by, because it, it, it accepts stresses and embraces that it doesn't have the ultimate foundation. And in difference to other approaches, religious approaches in particular, which claim to have that um, foundation, um, is, is, uh, which is so highly implausible, because none, none of these approaches can 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 provide you with a plausible justification wherein that ultimate foundation lies. So um, um, so this this rejection of a, of a, of a, of an ultimate foundation and by including it in in this way of thinking is 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 an advantage rather than a disadvantage. So as a, in addition as as a further consequence. It would be um, by getting rid of any essentialist concepts, or normative concepts as well. It doesn't mean that one cannot have any normative concepts, but the status of the normative concepts differs. For example, I, I strongly embrace a liberal ethics of autonomy. 
and and sort of as as long as you autonomously decide what you do and you don't limit the freedom of anyone else, um, then 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 this is um, ethically justified. You're ethically justified in acting thus. However, I don't have an ultimate reason for that. I don't have an ultimate foundation for why this approach is 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 better than what Pol Pot tried to establish in Cambodia. There is no ultimate foundation for, for why this, this normative stance, which I'm advertising for, is better than Pol Pot's. However, um, it is my approach, and I can tell a lot of story why it should be adopted. And I would, I, it's a way of convincing by, by means of telling narratives. I adopt it because it enables me um, to, 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 to stick to my very own demands of living a good life. I don't want to be forced by any political leaders. I don't want to be forced by religious leaders to stick to a certain concept of the good life. This is why people have been fighting for the norm of negative freedom as part of the enlightenment process. The fight took place on various levels. It scientists, philosophers, the wider public, they've all been fighting for the right to, to stick to their own very idiosyncratic, possibly also irrational demands um, what, or concept of what they identify with the good life. And that's such a wonderful achievement. There is no ultimate foundation why, why this negative freedom should be in any way better than, than a totalitarian regime as in Pol Pot's case. However, it's something I, I, I'm, I'm fighting for, and I'm happy that many people today also agree with me uh, on my side, also regard that as a very precious achievement. And sort of um, in order, and, and luckily we've already realized, established an ethics, a widely shared ethics of autonomy. I'm not saying it's a perfect ethics, it's a perfect understanding. There's still a lot to be done and there's, there will always be a lot to be done. Um, but that makes you aware, no, normative unfoldings are not necessary processes. There is no ultimate foundation which necessarily gets realized. Um, any, any kind of ethical enterprise is, is, in the end, a power struggle. It's something you need to engage with. You need to become active in order to, to promote an understanding, in order to shape society. And, and, and um, you need to become active and be engaged in discourses in order to promote the likelihood of the values and norms that you're upholding and you're sharing um, to become the dominant ones. So it really takes seriously the notion of the naturalist world where everyone's fighting in, against everyone else. And no, it's, 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 it's sort of a, a call for people to embrace that understanding and to stand up for their way of thinking about the world, to making people realize what a wonderful, what an amazing achievement negative freedom is. It's, we, are, we are historically, culturally, um, in such a specific um, in, in such a specific cultural setting, um, it has hardly ever been the case that people have the right to individually decide how to live their lives. And I'm, as I said, I'm we sort of in the in the in the, in the enlightened parts of the world. Um, um, even here, there are many totalitarian and and paternalistic structures 
which you can still find. And we need to get rid of them. We need to fight even further in order to increase the plurality possible within, within our cultural political fear. And so, um, and, 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 and this is a way to show, well, you, you, you realize once you embrace that naturalist framework, there's no reason why in the end, from a wider perspective, from a big picture, you look at down, you know, the, um, the, 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 the big bang and the world coming about and expanding or contracting again, it would be absurd to claim that our liberal notion of, uh, of ethics of autonomy has any, from a, from a higher perspective, a higher claim to truth. That is just, in, in, in such a world of permanent change, it would be absurd, an absurd claim to me. It, it, you are still, if you, if you wanted to claim a higher normative stance, then um, I would simply say you're still stuck in the old Christian framework by means of which you have a possibility of making such a claim of a higher stance. But in a world full of change, this is just not plausible. But so the ethics of autonomy I'm defending, it's a fiction. It's a fictive ethics, but um, that's as good as it gets. And that's, um, we need to realize it. And we need to get together the ones who realize that, that um, the individual's right to, to um, live according to their very own understanding of what the good life consists in. Um, we need to get together and promote this understanding and fight for it as, as good as, as, as possible. That's, that's my as good as it gets approach to ethics and political and legal challenges. I mean, I, so I, I see that, we, yeah, we, we interpret the consequences of the view rather differently and i i don't want to get into a a, a debate because we're out of time really on relativism versus other kinds of, of moral philosophies um but the the reason why i find that a little bit dispiriting is because i think it it reduces ethics to a kind of marketing it's about selling different narratives to people and persuading people of different narratives but ultimately there's no better there's no criteria according to which we can determine what is the best story in a sense you're right this is exactly the implication but yeah. if you wanted to make the claim just sort of thinking on a very fundamental level um, that there is a higher criterion an ultimate criterion of betterness implies a metaphysics which is just absurd in a world of naturalist change yeah, where, 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 where is it floating around? The ethics of autonomy is floating around in a platonic realm. Come on, this is not what you want to uphold. We are getting rid of these eternal norms, and once you've gotten rid of them, you can't. You, you, you need to accept. No, the same applies to our norms and values, and that's why all our norms and values are just fictions created by us and things which we need to fight for. Okay, I think we'll leave it there, um, and. We'll leave it to listeners to decide whether they want to get on board with that uh, that interpretation and that narrative or not. Uh, thanks very much for for joining me for this this conversation. I re really enjoyed the discussion, and as I mentioned at the outset, your book Ubermensch is just been released at the, the first of March with uh, Schwaba. Or Sh I can't pronounce it correctly, but I'm sure you can give the correct pronunciation of the publisher's name. But so thanks. Thanks a lot. Yeah, and later later this year, actually, the English translation of my monograph, Transhumanism, the World's Most Dangerous Idea, which came out in German in 2016, should be out too. Many thanks for that.
Yeah, uh, kind and interesting interview. Yeah, thanks very much, Stefan. Thanks. Bye.